from the studios of Park City. It's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Nell Larson. Minimalism. At first glance, people might think the point of minimalism is to get rid of and live with as few material possessions as possible, to turn your world into some version of a monastic life, eliminate, declutter, let go, a yoga mat, a candle, a vase with a single flower. But that image of minimalism would be a mistake. Minimalists don't focus on having less and less. They focus on making room for more. More time, more peace, more creativity, more experiences, more contribution, more contentment, more freedom. Clearing the clutter frees up the space. Emmy-nominated Emmy Netflix stars and podcasters and bloggers and New York Times bestselling authors Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus help millions of people living with less while creating more. It's all about minimalism. We'll be talking to the minimalists. That's in the first part of the show. Then in the second half, we'll... We'll switch topics and we'll look at the amazing idea of building a climate-friendly home by printing it out. <laughs> yes, researchers at the University of Maine have developed what they say is a promising climate-friendly response to the nation's affordable housing crisis. The world's first bio-based 3D printed home. Dr. Habib Dagger will join us to talk all about that. Environmental awareness and education. That's what This Green Earth is all about. Stay with us. Welcome back to This Green Earth. I'm Nell Larson. And I'm Chris Cherniak. And joining us now for the first part of the show are the, min the minimalists, Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Howdy. It's yeah. our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Well, we have to ask maybe maybe the obvious first question. Tell us about your, your path into minimalism. How did you get here? Well, I think it's a rather circuitous path. We grew up really poor. We Ryan and I have known each other for over 30 years now since we were fat little fifth graders in Dayton, Ohio. And we grew up poor and we thought we were so unhappy growing up because we didn't have any money. And so Throughout our 20s, we climbed the corporate ladder, and, and by our late 20s, by age 30, we had sort of achieved everything we ever wanted. The big house with more bedrooms and more toilets than people. We had uh, the six-figure careers, the luxury cars, the closets full of designer clothes, all the sort of trappings of consumer success, all the things that we thought were supposed to make us happy. But it turns out those things weren't really doing their job. Sure, those things brought bursts of pleasure, but the objects of our desire quickly became the objects of our discontent. And we realized the pursuit of happiness through material possessions, through the acquisition of trinkets was really the problem. And so about 12 years ago, we started letting go. I started simplifying my life. Two things happened to me that made me question everything. My mother died and, and my marriage ended both in the same month. And hmm. I started looking around at all this so-called success and achievement and questioning what had become my life's purpose? What was I so focused on? What was my idea of success? And um, why wasn't I, why was I so discontented? And I, I looked around and I realized that I was focused on all of the things, the, the actual physical material possessions that were supposed to bring me joy and bliss and tranquility, but it really did the opposite. And so I started letting go. I I spent about eight months letting go of roughly 90% of my material possessions, which sounds really radical at first until you realize that 
the average American household has 300,000 items in it. And that's not me going around counting people's stuff. That's according to the LA Times. And so I got rid of about 90% of my stuff and I started feeling freer and happier and lighter. And the people around me noticed something was different too. People at work started coming up to me and saying things like, oh, you seem less stressed or you seem so much calmer or you seem way happier. What is going on with you? And and then my best friend, Ryan, he, he came to me one day at, at work. He actually took me out to lunch at a really fancy restaurant called Subway. And um, <laughs> Fine dining. <laughs> That's middle of the list. Yeah, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> he sat me down and he said, why the heck are you so happy lately? You're not supposed to be happy. Your marriage ended. You're, 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 you're working 80 hours a week. What's going on with you? And so I told him about this thing called minimalism. And I basically just said minimalism is the thing that gets us past the things so we can make room for life's most important things, which turns out aren't things at all. Yeah, I was I was definitely jealous about uh, Josh being happier than me, so I had to figure out what was going on. And <laughs> what, what he did was introduce this concept of minimalism after kind of explaining it. It didn't seem too radical to me. It seemed more practical. It seemed like common sense, but um, I'll tell you, back in those days, uh, I did not have much common sense. So I got really excited, and I'm like, all right, man, let's do this minimalism thing. I'm in. I want to be a minimalist. <laughs> now what? Like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. So, so uh, Josh and I, we came up with this crazy idea called a packing party. Mm. And for me, I saw it as an opportunity for me to really identify what was adding value in my life because I was caught in that, uh, just that, 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 that consumeristic trap where I, I was chasing uh, things. I, I was chasing uh, ownership of as many things as possible. Now, there's nothing wrong with the house. There's nothing wrong with um, having a, a designer clothes. The problem is that I was putting all my, my weight of happiness onto those things. And I knew it wasn't, uh, I knew those things weren't bringing me happiness. So the packing party basically was where Josh and I, we packed up all my belongings as if I were moving. And then I unpacked the things that I needed over the next 21 days. So Josh came over and helped me box up everything, clothes, kitchenware, towels, toiletries, I mean, even my furniture. We, we covered that up. And it was amazing. After those three weeks, um, I still had about 80% of my stuff still sitting in those boxes. Hmm. And that for me was um, just this huge revelation, this huge light bulb moment of, man, look at all these things that I have purchased and I'm not even using uh, the vast majority of them. So you know, that's really where the minimalists.com started. It was with that, that 21 day packing party journey. So I, I have to ask, like, how do you, um, sort of avoid, I guess the trap, right? It seems like our world and our culture is sort of set up in this way to encourage consumerism and things and more and more and more. And this, of course, being an environmental radio show, I was looking at information about how how much our stuff impacts the environment. And so, you know, Bloomberg is saying mm -hmm. fashion alone is like 10% of global carbon dioxide output. Um, household goods are responsible for 60% of global greenhouse gas emissions or household goods and services. Um, and so, you know, as we think about this, obviously it's, it's really um, provides benefits, you know, personally, um, but we're also kind of getting this bigger picture um, benefit for, for our earth, for our world. But how do you avoid this trap? Like how, how do you not go down the path that the majority of people are going? 
Yeah, you bring up a great point because the average American throws away 88 pounds of clothes each year. That doesn't mean we're against clothes. Ryan and I are both wearing clothes right now, I'll have you know. <laughs> Happy to hear it. <laughs> That's why it's radio. However, yeah. what, what I... Yeah, yeah. Uh, you'll be happy to hear that that well it's not really about the how to we, we could talk about the how to stuff we, we've got some basic things that we can walk you through in terms of letting go but it really is about the why to getting clear on what the benefits mm -hmm. of simplifying are for you because the benefits tend to be different for different people mm -hmm. and so for me it all started with a simple question how might your life be better with less and for some people, that's like, oh, I can regain control of my finances. Or, hey, you know what? If I consume less, I'm going to produce less waste. I, as a minimalist, it's not why I got into simplifying my life, but I realized that I consume about 90% less than I used to. And as a result, I'm producing 90 to 98% less waste. It's not about getting to zero waste, but it's a radical reduction. The same thing is true with all of our consumption. Ryan and I are not against things. In fact, here's the weird paradox of minimalism. As a minimalist, I get far more value from my things now than when I was watered down by hundreds of thousands of useless trinkets that were in the way. And so identifying the benefit is really important. And then from there, you could talk about some basic mechanical techniques that will help you pare down the excess stuff. We have a, a free minimalist rule book people can download from our website, minimalists.com. It's 16 rules for living with less, but here's a couple really useful rules for you that have helped me and Ryan along our journey. One is called the no junk rule. Everything you own can fit in one of three piles. It's either essential, it's non-essential but value-adding, or it's junk. Now, we all have the similar essentials. We need food and, and shelter and clothing and transportation, and education, and vocation, right? We all have similar essentials. They manifest differently for different people. But then we have that second category, the non-essential things that add value to our lives. And these are the things that actually enhance or amplify or magnify our experiences of life. And so, strictly speaking, I don't need a couch at home, but I get a lot of value from it. So I don't want to deprive myself. We are not the deprivationists. <laughs> we are simplifying our lives to make room for what's important. And the tools in our life, meaning the material possessions, they act as tools to help us live a more meaningful life. Unfortunately, most of the things we own fit in that third category, and that is junk. Most of the things we own are clutter. Well, what is clutter? Clutter is merely something that gets in the way for you. And so one person's treasure could be clutter for you. If something I really value, I were to hand it to you and made you store it in your home, of course it's going to get in the way. And so it can certainly be clutter. The key is to let go of anything that is junk. And by letting go of it, you can make room for the essential and the non-essential things that actually add value to your life. Mm, the deprivationists, that domain was taken. Otherwise, uh, maybe that's what we would have been. <laughs> now, you know, my favorite rule um, in that in that rule book, which again, you know, we make our own rules. So um, if someone's reading this rule book, it, they are negotiable. Um, we don't want to tell people what to do. We show people what kind of what we've done and then they can, you know, take ingredients from our recipe and uh, make up their own their own recipe. But my favorite rule is uh, the, the 2020 rule. So Josh and I, on our very first book tour, uh, we head down to St. Petersburg. We were on the road for a couple weeks. We get to the hotel. I open the trunk, 
and I see like two duffel bags, a garment bag, a book bag, like all this stuff. And I'm like, Josh, look how hypocritical we are, man. Like, mm. look at all this stuff we brought with us for a two week trip. So we started talking about like, why did we feel like we needed to bring so much? And it really came down to all of these just in case items. You know, we were in Florida, so we needed swim trucks. And, you know, I brought two pairs of swim trunks in case one of those got dirty and, and so forth and so on. So Josh and I really started unpacking uh, well, literally and figuratively, um, what those just-in-case items were doing to us. And that's when we came up with the just-in-case rule or the 2020 rule. And it's it goes like this. You can replace any just-in-case item in less than 20 minutes for less than $20. And Josh and I have been using that rule for 10 years, and it has worked for us 100% of the time. Now, I know at first it sounds like you know, you're going to have to spend $20 every single day to replace something, but that's not how it works. The just in case rule, it gives you permission to let go of all those just in case items because you rarely ever have to use it. Josh and I, um, like I said, we've been, we've been using that rule for about 10 years and I think we've had to use it between the two of us, uh, maybe five times. It's uh, it's, it's a rule that's really helped me let go of all those, you know, the drawer full of cables and, uh, you know, and uh, the, my 20 coffee mugs that I had, it's, it's a great rule to help you let go. All right, I'm I'm still trying to get my head around the gray areas that can be set up and how people define in their own terms what is non-essential and what is junk. Because let's say I like to play tennis. And so a tennis racket, or okay, two tennis rackets is I consider non-essential, but they add value to my life. They are important mm -hmm. to adding to my life, my, my physical yeah. well-being, my my uh, yeah. social well-being, et cetera. So I wouldn't consider those junk. Others might. Um, <laughs> maybe having seven yeah. or eight rackets might be crossing the line into junk. I'm trying to understand how some people might de mm. define uh, what, what I would think is junk, like, I don't know, having uh, a mountain bike, a road bike, uh, a fat tire bike, uh, I know there's our producer who's literally giving me the, the hairy eyeball because <laughs> that's what she has. I consider that junk, but others consider it non-essential non but important. That's, that's where, it, it, to me, it gets kind of uh, difficult mm. to pin down. Yeah, I, you know, I think really, you know, these these rules, these boundaries, they're for people to do some introspection. So, you know, it, it has people asking those questions. The question that you're asking right now is, are my tennis rackets, are those junk? Right. And what I heard you say is, no, they're not junk at all. I, I snowboard. So I got okay. all the, the stuff that goes along with that snowboard, gloves, hat, the snowboard bag, the jacket. Right. Um, you know, the earmuffs. I have all of that stuff. Now, for me... It's not junk. No. It adds a lot of value to my life. In fact, I might even call it essential because when I get on that mountain, oh, man, like it, it feels so good. I get so much joy being on that mountain where if I gave all my snowboarding equipment to Josh, mm. it would be junk to him. He would probably get rid of it, find it a good home. Right. And the same thing is true with respect to Ryan. If I were to give him 10 snowboards, now all of a sudden... I'm cluttering his life. The thing that was essential is now clutter. Now, that is also true over a certain time frame. I think it's easy to see with kids. I've got a nine-year-old daughter, and the things that she played with when she was three, she would, she, she would be appalled if I tried to get her to play with them now, right? 
And so what happens? The things that bring us value, that amplify our joy over a long enough timeline, they cease to add that same value. Unfortunately, what we do is we cling to it just in case just it might continue case. to add value in some non-existent hypothetical future. And what we're saying is we're not telling you to let go of anything. We're not saying you should get rid of anything. But if something ceases to add value, it's a great opportunity to let it go. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Emmy-nominated Netflix stars, podcasters, New York Times bestselling authors, Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus, known as The Minimalists. Um, let's see. Oh, okay. I wanted to ask, circling back here, about something that you mentioned earlier, and that was, you know, um, not about the mechanics of getting rid of stuff, but like getting straight on your personal reasons for being a minimalist. What are you looking for? Um, what are some of the different reasons that you see motivating people to do this? You know, I originally thought it was just about the stuff, the sort of decluttering. Now, I was a well-organized hoarder, so I had all the excess stuff, but you wouldn't have come over to my house and said, oh, wow, look at all the, look, it's not like a, the show Hoarders, right? I had everything <laughs> neatly organized in an ordinal system of boxes and bins and alphabetized CDs and DVDs. And yet I had all of this excess stuff. My basement had become a mausoleum of excess. My spare bedroom was essentially a storage locker. When I ran out of room in there, I put stuff in my two and a half car garage, which I could barely park one car in. Why? Because I had a lot of stuff. But what I quickly learned is that our material possessions are a physical manifestation of what's going on inside us. So I had a lot of external clutter, sure, but really when I started sorting through that external clutter, letting it go, it made room to start looking at all of this other clutter that was in my life. The mental clutter, the emotional clutter, the spiritual clutter, the relationship clutter, calendar clutter, you know, that terrible four-letter word. Can I say it on the radio? Busy? Yeah. <laughs> Are we allowed to say that or do you have to bleep me out? It's the worst four-letter word in the English language, and yet we use it all the time as a status symbol, right? Oh, what have you been up to? Oh, just so busy. Well, when I said I was busy, what, did I, what was I really saying? My life is out of control. I have all this calendar clutter. Everyone else's emergency has become my urgency. And so I started letting go of many of those obligations. And then from there, I learned about all these other types of clutter as well. And so I learned that our lives are cluttered because we continue to pick up the clutter ourselves. But I learned this other truth, that everything that I picked up, I also had the ability to set it down. I read somewhere a while back that there are more storage uh, uh, places, um, facilities, than there are McDonald's or something in the country, which goes to your uh, comment about how much stuff we we cram first in our homes and then in our attic and then in our basements and then in our garage and then eventually we have to go rent a storage unit <laughs> to to continue to, mm, yeah. to stuff yeah, our things to find home yeah. for our it's things. quite the industry yeah yeah I, I will say i don't think consumerism is a uniquely american problem however the storage locker industry is uniquely american about 90 percent of the storage lockers in the world are in the united states of america and yeah. we store a lot of our stuff we had someone call into our podcast last week and she said she was exacerbated because her mom said 
that when she dies, she wants her coffin to be placed in her storage locker so she can be with all of her beautiful things. Oh, my. And um, and talk about mausoleums of stuff, right? And this isn't a judgment of that, but it's it's a... understanding of the misunderstanding that's going on and you're right there are so many storage lockers in america that you could take every american and put them in storage in storage lockers and they would fit (laughs) Mm. wow (laughs) but that but again some people define that as as a success in their sense like i look at all the stuff i have um Mm. you know and again it gets back to that woman believes that that's essential to her um, so, mm. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I can see arguments that suggest that, Hey, I, I, I love collecting snow globes and I have 87 snow globes and I enjoy that. That I get joy from that. So, uh, not, I'm not, this is me. I'm, I'm you know, third <laughs> sure, person. Chris. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, but, but again, for a friend. but again, that, it's a difficult definition or it's a moving target. But I do like what you're saying about the busy, that word busy. It's about, maybe it's about being productive and not necessarily busy. I'm trying to think of terms that work better. You know, your calendar is productive, but not just filled up and yeah. busy. Or maybe focused, which focused. I think apes okay. many of the forms that busy does. Yeah, what, what am I focused on? It was Henry David Thoreau who said that it's not enough to be busy. The question is, what are you busy about? I'm paraphrasing. But if I were to append that, I would say it's not enough to be busy. What, what are you focused on or what am I focused on? Because, yes, I can be busy all day, moving my hands and moving my mind and, as you say, not being very productive. I just want to circle back real quick to the storage lockers and yeah. to the stuff and Yes, it is true that if you get immense value from those things, Ryan and I aren't telling you that you should get rid of it. We're simply suggesting that it's okay to question the status quo. If if those things are bringing you bliss and happiness and equanimity and you feel the joy that is amplified by all that stuff, then by all means, we don't want to deprive you of that. Right. But if you're feeling that pang of, discontent of sorrow of grief perhaps it has something to do not with the things that you don't have but with the things you do have and the path to peace is not through addition it's through subtraction Mm. Uh, and you know that i mean that that's exactly why i went to josh and i asked him like why the heck are you so happy (laughs) is because there was something happening internally that i knew something had to change i mean josh didn't guilt trip me (laughs) into getting rid of stuff right he didn't say hey you got too much stuff you should get rid of it it was about me realizing that my focus uh, what i was living it was in in the wrong areas and minimalism helped me just you know regain control of my time regain control of my finances and so you know for anyone who's who collects the 87 snow globes or has a storage unit josh and i are not judging we're not trying to make people feel guilty about it however if you've got 87 snow globes and, and you've got a storage unit and you're feeling stressed, you're feeling weighed down, you're feeling like those things are getting in the way, well, that is where minimalism might be able to help. Hey, I, I like that, uh, that uh, fact you gave that the average home has 300,000 items. 
And if you get rid of 90% of it, you still have 30,000 items. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Isn't that wild? So it's, it's like, hey, can it's we just get, can we get down to like maybe 23,000 items in our home? <laughs> that would be, that would be a success. How many items are in the drink drawer though? Uh, yeah. And, and we, it, yeah, go ahead. We have a oh, wouldn't minutes. it be nice if there was a list of like, okay, well, we're the minimalists. So, um, you know, we have uh, been doing this for a decade. Here's a list of all the things that one oh. should own. And if you have a child, then you can add these things to the list. And if you have a second child and you're, I mean, I, I wish minimalism worked that way because that would be so much easier. But the fact is, is that, you know, sim simple is not easy. Simple right. is, uh, is deliberate, but I think we get easy and, and simple confused. But ultimately, yeah, um, um, the list would be nice just so we could like check all the boxes. But the, the, the thing that Josh and I really appreciate about what we're doing is we're setting up these boundaries for ourselves. Whereas before, I had no boundaries. If I had money, I spent it. In fact, I was, you know, putting things on credit cards. I was spending the money before I even had it. And that is where I really found myself in a mess. So, you know, minimalism, another way to look at it is just simply setting up some boundaries for yourself, creating a little bit of friction. Well, I, I totally agree. A, a couple, a decade or so ago, I, I traded money for time. Uh, when I mm -hmm. moved from South Florida, working 60, 70 hours a week, to, to out here with me and my dog, and, and, a, and a tennis racket, of course. And um, uh, I have no money, but I have lots of time. And I feel right. much more productive because I'm more engaged in the world, doing volunteer work, um, um, being outdoors, et cetera. I don't, I don't have money to, to buy things that I want. I can't go out to restaurants much that I like. I, I mean, there's some, dare I say it, sacrifices associated with it. And I know that might be anathema. You want to avoid that. This isn't about taking a vow of poverty, but it is about, again, finding happiness not necessarily um inst instant pleasure per se that a lot of mm. things can provide short-term pleasure so mm. i'm i'm on the same page but this is the pushback i get sometimes when people say oh you're having minimalists on oh that's again you know turning your life into a shaker village and <laughs> living living like luddites and as you guys say stoics and and uh yoga mat and and a and a and a candle, you know, and a bottle of water from a glacier, <laughs> from a, some glacier a thousand miles away. So anyway, I I totally understand that. Um, but we only have a, a minute or so. Let's talk about your Netflix documentary. Documentary. Less is now. Yeah, we we filmed this uh, just a couple of years ago. It came out. Uh, yeah, a couple of years ago, and we. It was nominated for an Emmy last year, and we interviewed several different minimalists, including everyday minimalists, people who had mm. received some sort of benefit from simplifying their lives, people from all different walks of life. And what we learned is that minimalism is not for a particular person. Mm. It's for anyone who is questioning the status quo, anyone who's questioning their own discontent. So if you're completely happy and contented by the status quo, then minimalism probably is not for you. But if there's that pang somewhere where you're like, ah, oh, there might be more, well, that more might be found through having less. And in that way, 
in some ways, it's about maximalizing your life too, or maximalizing your quality of life. So you could be considered maximalists oh, yeah. in that sense. It, but it, it absolutely could. I will okay. tell you though, the one thing about calling yourselves the minimalists, everything we do is steeped in irony. Yes. So yes, <laughs> what we're really doing is hel helping people maximize their life to uh, live live a meaningful life. Hey, it's in the Declaration of Independence, isn't it? <laughs> The pursuit, well, pursuit of happiness. Life, yeah. liberty, Sadly, and the pursuit I, of happiness. Thank you. I yeah. yeah, I think that's kind of the problem, actually. The life, liberty, and the happiness of pursuit is how I would prefer it. Um, <laughs> mm. Well done. Well done. You want to wrap up? Yeah. We, we, we could talk to you all yeah. hour, but unfortunately oh, yeah. we have to go. <laughs> um, these, we're talking to the minimalist, Joshua Fields Milburn and, and Ryan Nicodemus. Thank you so much for joining us this morning yeah. on the screener. Oh, real quick. A uh, website? <laughs> Sorry. Oh, yes. Uh, it's theminimalists.com, and you can find everything there. Thank you so much for having us, y'all. Oh, let's stay in touch. Thank you. All right. Joshua. All right. Love it. Um, let's take a break for an uh, underwriter or two. And when we come back, this is interesting, almost kind of a, on the th th thematic in a sense that we're going to be talking about building a potentially very sustainable homes through 3D printers of biomaterial. Uh, Dr. Habib Dagger will be joining us to talk about his research into this area, 3D printing of homes. It's This Green Earth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. I'm Nell Larson. Well, researchers at the University of Maine have develop what they say is a promising climate-friendly response to the nation's, nation's affordable housing crisis. One, of course, which is at the top of the list of news items here in, in Park City and Summit mm -hmm. County. Uh, it's, it's the world's first bio-based 3D printed home. Dr. Habib Dagger, who is the founding executive director of the Advanced Structures and Composite Center, a National Science Foundation-funded research center, uh, is here to talk about the work that he's done, at, I guess, at the University of Maine Composite Center. Uh, Dr. Dagger, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Thank you. It's great, it's great to meet you, Chris and Uh Okay. Um, Hardly know where to st start with this one because I'm trying to get my head around uh, what this 3D printer must <laughs> look like and, and um, what, what are the raw materials, first let's start with it, what are the raw materials that go into this printer? You can use a lot of various raw materials in this, but uh, the printer is about, has a, is a print volume that's 60 feet long, 22 feet wide, and 10 feet high. That's the maximum single piece that we can, we can print. But the materials we're using for printing the home are all bio-based. Mm. So we're using essentially wood, um, what we call residuals from the sawmills. Um, when you saw a log, for example, not all the material can make the grade. Um, and we take that and we grind it up in, into a powder, if you wish, and combine it with a bio-resin. And, and that's the material we're printing with. Okay, so you're actually you're you're making um, material that then actually has to be either put together in some form, you know, the traditional nails, glue, etc., to build a home. Is that right? 
Actually, there is no nails uh, that's ah. needed or glue that's needed in this case. So what, what we do is we we break up the house into modules mm. uh, that include the walls, the floors, and the roof system. And each module is sized so you can put it on a truck. And what we do is we print the entire module within the printer. There, there is no nails needed, no screws. Um, and um, and then we include within the walls bio uh, uh, insulation as well, wood wood blown insulation within the walls and the roof system. Uh, we pre-wire the modules, and uh, then these modules then are, are taken to the site on the truck, and then and then they assemble together. Uh, the first home we built was a 600 square foot home uh, using this technology. So. Okay, so um, and then the home. You have a website. It, it shows it shows the the home. I mean, the home is a typical. Well, it's only 600 square feet, um, but yes. it can be multiple rooms in a traditional in a traditional sense. Correct. Correct. This this uh, home is is the first of of its kind. So we we started with a modest 600 square foot unit, and it it's a single bedroom. It's got a kitchen, bathroom, uh, uh, kitchen, um, living room, dining room uh, area. And it's um, and, and a bathroom and an entryway, so um, it meets all the requirement for main housing, uh, main state housing for uh, for mm -hmm. a um, uh, for a home. Uh, but it's on a, of course on the low side, 600 square feet, and we printed that in three modules. So uh, and then uh, and then we assembled those uh, on the site. It took less than a day to assemble the modules on site. Um, but oh, go ahead. Oh yeah, uh, um, tell us about the path, like to kind of get to this point to be to be 3D printing an entire home. Like, how long did it sort of take to bring this project to fruition, and what kinds of um, challenges did you face? Uh, very, very good, very good questions. We, we, we've been our, our research center has been around for a quarter century, a little over a quarter century right now. We have about 300 people who work in the lab. And, and um, we've been working on combining bioresins and biofibers for over 20 years. And, and then about four years ago, we started looking at scaling up using this technology in 3D printers. And uh, so we installed the largest 3D printer in the world, polymer printer in the world in our lab about uh, three and a half years ago. And, and since then, we've been designing, if you wish, a home using these materials uh, and uh, put it, um, uh, finished the project uh, last November, and now the home is is out is is uh, sitting outside, uh, not too far from our laboratory, uh, with a lot of sensors on board, going through its first main winter. So, <laughs> how's it doing? So far, so good. We had actually some very extreme uh, winds and and uh, and storms uh, 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 over the last month. So uh, we have sensors inside the house that tell us how it's doing, both from a stress perspective, thermal perspective. So far, so good. So we've we've learning a lot, of course, from this experiment, and we hope to learn more and and then use that as a springboard to to um, to design the next the next version of the house. You you, you stated that it it only took uh, I think a, a day or so to to actually put the modules together once they were on site, but how long might it take to actually print quote unquote print out the modules in uh in the at the facility? A lot faster than it took us to do the first one. So yeah. the first one, <laughs> the first one, of course, was an experiment. We learned a lot. We broke our equipment a bunch of times. <laughs> so we're trying to do it and, and fix it. But uh, but our goal is to be able to do a home like this in 48 hours once we scale up the technology. Um, mm. And uh, 
and when I say 48 hours, that includes printing the floors, the walls, external walls, interior walls, and the roof um, uh, modules. Um, and um, the house weighs about 40,000 pounds, and our goal is to be able to print it at 1,000 pounds an hour. So basically do it in 40 hours. We're not there yet, but this is where we're heading. Right. So, wow. Yeah. We're looking at each other in the studio like 48 hours to build a whole home. That's amazing. Um, when you talk about scaling up, like what does the cost look like as well? Does it make this a cost-effective yeah. solution to, to scale? Yeah, we're studying all the costs right now, but um, the, the, the reason we, we think we can drive the cost down compared to existing technologies is uh, labor is a big part of cost right now, so that allows us to reduce labor. We reduce waste significantly, so we're not taking a lot of uh, truckloads to the dump here in the construction site. Mm. Uh, we, we're near zero waste in, in what, we're, what we're doing. Wow. And, and the materials we're using are less expensive than traditional materials. As I said, we're using wood waste. We call it wood residuals. Uh, this is uh, this is material that is a waste from the sawmills. In our region um, where, where we live, um, we had a number of pulp and paper mills that used to take this material years, years ago and use it, but those shut down. Um, so we have now about a million tons um, of this material per year uh, in our region. And um, and um, so we we need only about ten tons per unit of, of that that wood waste uh, or wood residuals, if you wish. So um, so the wood residuals that exist in our forests uh, in our region, if we could use them all for these homes, because we're not going to do that. But mm. if we use that, uh, we can do a hundred thousand homes uh, just for the one year, if you wish, of of wood residual or waste. Wow. Uh, yeah. And then what about the bioresin that you use with this other, with this wood waste? Where does that come yeah, from? Are, yeah, there's a variety of bioresins that we're looking at right now. Uh, some of the resins could be derived from corn. Uh, some of it could mm -hmm. be derived from uh, from wood, actually. Some of it could be derived from uh, uh, other other biomaterials. Uh, but, uh, but, our, but our goal is, is about 50% by weight uh, uh, wood fiber for strength and 50% is a resin that keeps it all together. We're speaking with Dr. Habib Dogger. He's the founding executive director of the Advanced Structures and Composite Center, uh, a National Science Foundation-funded research center. He's also um, a, a professor, I'm, I guess, at the University of Maine uh, and works at the U University of Maine Composite Center where they just recently uh, re released some information or research about printing using a 3D printer printing out homes uh, made from biomass. And as you say, uh, Dr. Dogger, there, there are pulp and paper mills in Maine. Of course, there's pulp, pulp and paper mills in the southeast and out in the northwest. And, you know, lots of pulp and paper mills with lots of wood or biomass-based uh, uh, waste material where uh, this process could be taken advantage of. Exactly, exactly. The biomass like this exists uh, throughout the U.S. and the world. Um, and um, as long as the forests are, are um, uh, grown in a sustainable manner, we have a sustainable uh, resource, if you wish, uh, that um, that could be used to, to produce these homes. Let's talk the economics of this. Um, what... What is an idea of uh, the range of cost associated with building, say, this 600, a 600-square-foot 600 home? 
Yeah, today um, we're working very closely with the Maine State Housing Authority and, and a 600 square foot low income home in the state of Maine, one bedroom, costs between $200,000 and $300,000 per unit right now. So it's not cheap to no. build these homes in, in today's numbers. And, and it, it was $200,000 two years ago, and it's no near $300,000 today wow. because of the pandemic, of course. That's why we have a range. Um, and and um, we, we believe that this technology, when scaled up, will, will allow us to beat these costs, but most importantly, allow us to produce homes um, that people need today. One of the big issues are the material costs that have been gone up, and, and we're, we're using a, a very low-cost material to build the homes from but also the fact that we don't really have the, the labor force to build them. In Maine, we, were, we have an aging state. We're the oldest state in the country. So uh, trying to find someone to build something for you right now is a big challenge uh, in, in the state of Maine. So um, so even though there's funding but for the state of Maine to build low-income homes, um, they don't have the people to build them. Uh, so, so, the, so this technology allows us to uh, not only um, reduce the cost of labor, but also uh, uh, allow us to build homes that we can't build today. Uh, so there's um, because of labor shortages that exist. Hmm. So. Wow, it's it's not for a, a shortage of material per se, uh, and the, and the tech, like you say, the technology is there. It's it's labor based. I think about these homes potentially providing some purpose in say in times of natural disasters, um, um, where you could have a, a home again printed out in a relatively short period of time. Uh, to address uh, housing needs uh, from, uh, say, post-hurricanes or, or, or tornadoes or other some type of natural disaster? Certainly that's, a, that's possible. And, and, of course, these could be stockpiled by, yeah. by disaster agencies uh, and, and used when needed. And the, the advantage is that we these are modular. Uh, yeah. we, we break them up into pieces. So so these modules could be existing in, in different locations uh, and and uh, and ready if you wish to be to be assembled on site when needed. With this enormous three D printer, are there other applications that you guys are using it for as well? Like in addition to housing, what how else can that be put to work? Mm. You, you, you put your finger on it. There's a, certainly a lot of opportunities for these printers to be used in a variety of applications. Housing is, is a big part of what we're doing. It's what we're focusing a lot of our efforts on because of the societal needs today. But we're also looking at, for example, boat building um, in Maine. And, and uh, Maine is a big boat building state. And, and right now, if you want a 60 or 70 or 80 foot boat, you may have to wait two years plus to get one. Could we cut that down to less than a month? Uh, we printed a boat about three years ago. Uh, it was our, when we first got the printer, we designed a, a printed boat and, and wanted to see how long, whether we could be done at all. And so we, we started printing this 25-foot boat, um, um, it's a marine patrol vessel, um, on Thursday night at, at uh, near near 10 o'clock and, and finished on Sunday night near 10 o'clock. So, <laughs> so it took about you know, a little over a weekend to print a boat like that. So uh, so there are a lot of opportunities here in society, but, but again, um, um, uh, there's also opportunities to to print very large scale furniture. Uh, uh, maybe in the long run, maybe you can even print the kitchen cabinets again for all. Uh, and uh, but of course, we, there's a lot to learn here, and 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 we're scratching the surface of it in terms of the opportunities ahead. Is anybody using this technology at like at a you know large market scale yet at this point, and and selling any large printed products? There are. Um, 
there are um, a number of companies looking at printing with concrete and mm. printing homes using concrete. Mm. Um, uh, there are some um, uh, uh, homes that have been printed that way and neighborhoods being printed that way. Uh, the, 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 the thing is, is uh, what is done there is a printer is placed on site uh, where, the, where the house is going to go and then essentially prints the walls out of concrete. And um, and then the rest of the house is typically finished using you know traditional construction. The roof is um, roof, wood roof trusses, for example, and 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 so on and so forth. So um, so concrete technology is starting to move forward in three D printing, but we're not using concrete, and we're not just printing the walls. We're printing the entire house, if you wish, and that's what makes it different. And and the fact that we're using a renewable resource versus concrete um, uh, allows us to reduce the carbon footprint significantly. Um, plus the homes that we're doing are 100% recyclable as well. So oh, if wow. our children and grandchildren 200 years from now don't want the house anymore, uh, we can take the house and grind it up and print something else with it. And, and um, so it's 100% recyclable, which makes it uh, quite a bit different than the technologies that are being used today. So, so you said 200 years from now, like do you think that the, the lifespan of these printed homes, this material is is enormously long like that? We, we believe it is. Wow. Uh, we've done some accelerated testing today. We've been working with these materials, as I said, for close to 20 years. We've placed some of them in equatorial um, uh, uh, regions of the, of the world to, to see how they, uh, in swamps and other places, to see how they hold up. And we've placed them in, in, in colder weathers as well. Mm. Um, the, the data shows that these, these should be able to last that long in, in those environments. Um, and uh, what we're doing right now is trying to figure out how many times can we recycle them and still have useful materials. Mm. Because every time you recycle it, of course, you're going to lose properties. And so uh, we're doing five recycling cycles as we speak right now to see uh, uh, how the materials change over time and um, and how often can we recycle them. That's fascinating. Yeah. And getting back to the carbon footprint, this being an environmental show, what amount of energy is required is it is this all just basically electricity that's being consumed or is there some heating processes uh, talk about the energy consumption to build a yeah so the, the very good question the, the printer itself uses electricity to produce heat if you wish to to to, to print with so there's there's a um, um there's some electricity uh, use in this, of course, and, and the goal, of course, in the long run is to use renewable electricity for, for doing this. Um, the, um, uh, the, the materials themselves, of course, um, are, we would like to tell everybody, every one of these homes is like a carbon uh, sequestration and storage unit. Uh, because you, you're mm -hmm. taking, um, as the tree grows, of course, and if it's sustainably grown, then then the fiber that you're using to build the home is, is, uh, is a carbon captured from the air. So the house is uh, is there in, in um, so if you can keep the house for 200 years and recycle it five times, uh, then you're looking at potentially a thousand years worth of carbon sequestration and storage within these homes. So. Is there a limit? Okay, this is this being Park City, we're not happy unless we live in at least a 4,000 square foot home. <laughs> uh, is there a limit on on size or you know, how big could you build it? Could you build a multi, multi, print out a multi-story home? We are actually working on that. The um, as, as we speak, we're working with architects from New York on on printing modules or stackable, so you could do a stack stackable buildings. And but again, you know, it's a it's crawl before you walk, walk before you run. That's why mm -hmm. we're starting where we are. But but yes, the possibilities are to to take this technology and develop modules that could be stacked to to do multi-story uh, uh, housing units. So. 
You know, I was thinking I, there's yet another institution that will be knocking at your door, and that's the military or Department of Defense, because I'm sure they'll be interested uh, in in the process uh, of building, uh, you know, printing out structures for military purposes. Yes, we, we have actually they've been an investor in, in what we're doing to, to, to look at um, both housing applications, boat building applications and others. So, so they're investing in developing the processes that could be used not only for the military, but for society at large as well. So, so by, by working with them, we're, um, we, we were really developing dual use technologies that could be used uh, both for military and for civilian applications. Well, we could we could talk about this for oh, another yeah. half hour too. <laughs> we have a list of a long this list of questions. This falls but... under the minimalist type of style, Doctor. Uh, we were talking about minimalism in the first part of the show, and this is an example, a potential example of that. If if listeners are enthused by this, excited, want to learn more, where would you uh, direct them? Uh, folks can come to um, our website, um, uh, ASCC. Ameri- uh, that's the Advanced Structures and Composite Center um, website, and or if you want to just uh, type Biohome 3D, uh, or one word, Biohome 3D, and you'll you'll be able to go to our website and learn more and see, look at it from the inside, and 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 look at some videos of how it was actually produced. Dr. Habib Dagger with the University of Maine Composite Center, uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning on this Green Earth. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure, and thanks for all the good work you're doing. All right, thank you. Welcome back to this Green Earth. It's uh, time to wrap up, but we got a, a couple of cents. Let's thank our guests again. Absolutely. Uh, really. Go ahead. All right. First half, uh, we we spoke to the minimalist, which yeah. is a fascinating conversation. Joshua Fields, Milburn, and Ryan Nicodemus, of course, Emmy-nominated Netflix stars. Kind of, kind of some big, uh, big names for Less the show, now. Chris. Yeah, and and then we spoke with Dr. Habib Dogger, uh, with the University of Maine Composite Center, among other things, about 3D printed homes coming to our world, maybe here. At Recyclable. City. Go BioHome 3D for, to uh, search on that to find out more. You can email us your thoughts, comments, and ideas for topics and stories you'd like us to cover at thisgreenearth at kpcw.org. As always, the interviews from today's show will be posted on the KPCW website and everywhere you find your podcasts. Thanks again for joining us. And remember, this is KPCW 91.7 FM Park City. Tune in and listen like a local.